This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project. Teachers teaching teachers. To Write Answers, a production of the Ohio Writing Project. My name is Noah Waspy, and I'm excited to present another episode in our summer series in partnership with Octella, also known as the Ohio Council of Teachers of English Language Arts. So a few years ago, if you haven't listened to the other ones, I produced a podcast for Octella called the Speaking and Listening Podcast, and I got to interview some of the best minds in the field of teaching. And this interview that I'm presenting to you today is no exception. But first, let's read a poem. This one is from Rainer Maria Rilke's Sonnets to Orpheus, and it's from part two, and it's sonnet number 29. Here we go. Silent friend of many distances, feel how your breath is still increasing space. Among the beams of the dark belfries, let yourself ring out. What feeds on you will grow strong upon this nourishment. Be conversant with transformation. From what experience have you suffered most? Is drinking bitter to you? Turn to wine. Be in this immeasurable night, magic power at your senses crossroad. Be the meaning of their strange encounter. And if the earthly has forgotten you, say to the still earth, I flow. To the rapid water speak, I am. So I guess it was probably three or four years ago now that I got to interview Alison Marchetti and Rebecca O'Dell. And their book, Beyond Literary Analysis, was coming out, or was it about, it was about to come out, maybe. And we talked about the painstaking process that led into that book becoming a thing. And then that led us into talking about how writing can be painful, but in a good way, but also in a bad way. And how do we make it so that in school, it's more good than bad. It was a great conversation. And I can't wait for you to hear it. So here it is, my interview with Allison Marchetti and Rebecca O'Dell. You talk about how Tom Newkirk gave that rousing speech at the Donald Graves breakfast. We need you to continue the work, he says, kind of half-joking. And that's the moment that kind of lights things on fire. Uh Uh-huh. You say in the intro that um, you went back to the room and you were working on tomorrow's presentation. What was that presentation about? (laughs) Do you remember? (laughs) I do, because it is so funny. So that presentation was about using mentor text to teach literary analysis. What? <laughs> That's what your next book's about. That. Isn't that crazy? That was the first presentation we ever did together at NCTE. Um, and so we've kind of come like full circle since then because the book um, that we just finished, Beyond Literary Analysis, um, comes out in January. And it's really taking so much of that work that we did for that first ever NCTE presentation between the two of us um, and really like kicking it up a notch and thinking about 
how do we teach literary analysis better, but then how do we do even more than that, and how do we teach kids to write the kind of analysis we find in the real world. Uh, but it's all sort of came from the same point of genesis of that, I guess, really magical year at NCBE. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I remember, too, that we felt like our presentation was lacking, um, but like a like inspiration or some mm-hmm. kind of grounding metaphor. Yeah. And it was very practical, which was good, but then we realized it could be both practical and inspiring. And yeah. so one of the other things we did was we tried to infuse it with inspiration. We tried to come up with some kind of metaphor. Um, that would serve as, like, the backbone. And I think the, it was about dance. It was, it was about that, dance. Yeah, yeah, I think it was about dance. That's all I, I don't really remember the details, but it, yeah, I could not tell you the metaphor dance at all. And, and choreography. Yes, something, <laughs> yeah. something like that. But, you know, this is a really bad habit, actually, that Allison mm. and I have. Allison would say it's a good habit because all these things happen for a reason. Yeah. And I would say it's a really annoying habit of doing a lot of work. <laughs> The eleventh hour, being like, this just isn't good enough. Throwing it away. I um. Well, it's. I'm sure it's. It's obnoxious to feel those. uh, That tension in the moment, but, I mean, there's a lot out there. I was just earlier this year. I was listening to one of those TED Radio Hour uh, podcasts about how we don't. How it's really good to procrastinate because when you're Waiting until the last second, it gives you time to be inspired by all these extra things that might not mm. normally uh, catch your attention. Mm. And it sounds like this is kind of what happened when Tom Newkirk lit that fire. Yeah, <laughs> unintentional procrastination because Rebecca does not procrastinate <laughs> at all. <laughs> I, I for sure do, which is why we're a good team, but so it was unintentional because we didn't realize we were going to have to revamp the whole thing, but also I think because I'm a procrastinator, I felt more comfortable doing that 11th hour, and it was more than tinkering, it was tankering, if that's the word. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was not, we didn't plan it that way for sure. No, but I mean, I think that, you know, you were just at NCTE for the first time, Noah. Yeah. Um. And that was my first ever in CTE. And you know how it is. Like, we had just spent two days, like, blown away Mm -hmm. by all the things, by all the people, by all the smarts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what made us look at the thing that we had created at home and be like, this just isn't enough. (laughs) Like, we got to come up with something better (laughs) because we need to blow some people's heads off, too. Do you think that that's sometimes how kids feel when they are confronted with a a mentor text for the first time? I think, um, well, I think kids are even more resistant to that 11th hour kind of inspiration than I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think, and in fact, I was talking to my students about that this week because they're getting ready to turn something in on Wednesday that we've been working on for a few weeks. And so the task I gave them on Friday was to go back to the mentor text and see if they could find a handful more things, like new things that they hadn't seen before, that they hadn't tried yet, that they hadn't written down on their list of noticings. Um, and they really hate that, you know, like me, like they want to be done. They want to feel proud of this product. They want to feel like it's plenty finished ahead of time. And then, you know, a mentor text is a lot like NCTE, like it just keeps on giving. And the more we're willing to let it um, inspire us, 
the more inspiration there is to get. You know, it's interesting, too, because so much of writing depends on the precise situation in which you are sitting down doing the writing. You know, um, whether it's at the 11th hour or not, I was talking to a friend who was published in uh, Voices in the Middle journal um, this past week, and he said, you know, it's a fine piece, but it's not the piece I'd write if I were writing it today. Um, And he, you know... He wrote the piece just maybe a month or so ago, but he said it would look very different if he sat down to write it today, and I thought that was really interesting, too, and I guess procrastination, you know, can can be, can impact and influence, obviously, what comes out um, onto the page, but a lot of it has to do with our situation, our precise writing situation, the time, the place, what's on our minds. And influencing that thinking, and the fact that you know we write to discover. You know, we write we write to inform, and we write to tell and share our experiences. But so much of writing is about discovery, and I think that that's why we're never really done with a piece. Like, I mean, Allison and I are ready to go back and do a second edition of Writing with Mentors already. So we're like, in the meantime, since that book has come out, we have discovered so many more things that we, through our writing, through our teaching, through that continually recursive process, you know, that, like, you aren't ever really done because you always can go back and discover something else. And our students recognize that, too, at the end of the year when we have them reflect portfolio style on their writing over the course of the year. This is this is what they say, too. You know, oh, my goodness, yuck, I don't want to read that, or how could I have written that and thought that was good? Well, what were they thinking? So it's just a natural part of, of the writing process. And that's a magic that we really have to, like, try to lure them toward, you know, in a really not creepy way. But, like, <laughs> you know, that, like, to us, that fact that we could go back and write a totally different writing with mentors today than we did three years ago, like, for us, that's kind of magical. You know, like, that's the magic of writing. We really have to work hard as teachers to make that recursive, never-ending process magical and fun and playful for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do you think it's not magical and fun and playful for kids because it's hard um (laughs) it's hard i mean it's hard in so many ways logistically to find the time and the space um it is it's hard work i mean it can like hurt your heart to write hurt your brain to write Mm -hmm. it's um it's like deep deep digging that we aren't necessarily um you know, ready or capable for um, to do on your average day. Um, And it's different than what they've been asked to do in the past. It's a real scary kind of digging in. Even when the topic you're not writing, the topic you're writing about isn't scary, Mm -hmm. the process of writing about it is. Well, and, you know, I have a kindergartner this year, and the writing process isn't scary to her at all. (laughs) And so I think, you know, there's something that happens between kindergarten and when we see them in 6th through 12th grade. Um, You know, Allison just said, it's, like, not like anything else they've been asked to do. And, in fact, in some ways, it's, like, what they've been told not to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in a parent-teacher conference this week, (laughs) and... I was telling the parents, like, isn't this great? Like, your son gets all these opportunities to learn and grow and master the skill, and it doesn't have to be right the first time. And so I want him to just try. I just want him to go out and do the best he can, mm-hmm. and then we can go back together, you know, and, and continue to work on the piece. 
And and the parents were really resistant to that. Um, and they were like, wow. well, that's just very, very hard for him because he's always been told he needs to do his best the first time. Boom. And that's just going to be very hard for him to swallow. And I think that's exactly it. You know, like we have brainwashed kids with grades and penalties mm. in the form of grades. Um, and do your best work the first time, and, you know, all of these messages that are really counter to any real writer's process. Mm -hmm. And so to get them back to a place where they can accept process and not just product takes a lot of work. Yeah, sure does. (laughs) But I think it's, I mean, it's obviously work worth doing. Um, the, The thing that I'm just curious about We've been talking a little bit about some of the pain of writing, and it's something I've been. And of course, I think that the pain that that sometimes we uh, sometimes the pain is artificial. The pain that we uh, provide for students around writing, but I also wonder if sometimes writing. Well, let me just give an example. I was remember I was telling you about that book um, the other day, Powers. Of two, <laughs> <laughs> which which I have now purchased. <laughs> Such a good book. Well, in that book, I think it's maybe in the introduction, or maybe it was in an interview afterward. The author is talking about how he he put off writing that he loved writing this book, and he put off writing this book, and the deadlines would come, and he'd be late for his deadlines, and his editors on his case. And he's going into like this deep depression about it, and then he finally gets it done. And I, I think that that's a process that writers sometimes go through too. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think just hearing that is my own because me- I feel that sometimes when I'm writing, especially when I'm writing for a deadline, something that wasn't something that I was just doing for fun. Whenever there's deadline-based writing, it's painful, but. I think it's okay to experience that pain. What do you think? Do you think I'm off on that? No. I think no. Like, we talk all the time about productive struggle, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's good to feel that struggle because um, because that's, that's real. And whether or not our kids grow up to write for the Atlantic, which I hope they all do, I hope, like, mm-hmm. in 20 years, the entire staff of the Atlantic is kids that we But, you know, I mean, like, that deadline and creating toward a deadline, that specific kind of pain, I mean, that is really real. And that's one of the ways that all of what we do in workshop is transferable. Um, working through processes, becoming independent, working toward deadlines, figuring out how to revise your work, figuring out how to choose topics and how to choose the work you want to do, you know, that is the work of, you know, all creative people, which I would argue, you know, we all are, not just writers. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely teaching them something about writing in that process. Like, I've never been happier and never been more miserable than Mm -hmm. when I'm writing. Um, Mm -hmm. And often at the same exact time. But we're also, like, that. those are some of the life skills that workshop conveys. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I don't talk to many co-writers. <laughs> what's, what's your guys' process like when you're co-writing a book? You know, it's, um, it hasn't been an identical process. Uh, with mm-hmm. our first and second books, mm-hmm. as we uh, write more together and think more together and, and really grow as writers and teachers more together, the 
the process has changed a little bit um, as our voices have become more attuned to one another. Um, so for writing with mentors, we, I mean, just in a nutshell, we sort of assigned each other chapters and did heavy outlines, switched, wrote into those outlines, switched back, wrote in again, kind of layering our voices hmm. one on top of the other until there was a blend that felt consistent and uh-huh. unified. Um, and and it, um, so every chapter, very, you know, had 50% Rebecca, 50% Allison, for sure. Um, but with the second book, you know, we were a little bit more um, comfortable with with our collective voice. And so uh, there wasn't as much trading back and forth. Um, you know, how, how would you expand on that, Rebecca? Like, how did we do things differently? It did feel different to me the second time. Well, there was a whole lot that was different because we also wrote writing with mentors in five months. Um, yeah. And we, wrote, and we wrote Beyond Literary Analysis in about 18 months. Um, so that was a very different way to approach it, too, and there were definitely pros and cons with each. Um, with Beyond Literary Analysis, we did do a whole lot more just, like, straight-up dividing and conquering. And then at the very end, when we had written our way into a very big corner um, that we couldn't figure out how to get out of, then we did more of that switching. And I was like, Allison, I cannot look at this chapter anymore. Whatever has to be done to it, you have to do, because I'm done. I'm walking away from this chapter. Um, and so then at the 11th hour, we did um, a lot more of that, you know, writing into each other's writing. But I would mm-hmm. say something that was consistent through both um, books and something that I think is very unique to our co-authorship um, is that we were also teaching in literally next-door classrooms mm. the whole time we were writing both books. And so, you know, so much of the thinking, all of that rehearsal that, you know, a writer does in the writing process of the talking out loud and the thinking it through and the, like, looping back on your thinking before you ever start writing, a lot of that we were just doing together naturally in our lives of teaching. Uh, Mm -hmm. We were doing that, like, between classes and walking down to an assembly and during lunch. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that that also is is a thing that made us able to write in one voice um, was that the thinking was completely mutual and, you know, completely together the whole time. I feel like, um, and as, you know, just to piggyback on that, yeah, the thinking was certainly, our process of thinking together was consistent, but I think with the second book, we did more problem solving, like more, we had, I mean, we had more problems and we had to (laughs) solve them. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some ways, now that I'm, talked about that NCPE presentation that we totally changed at the 11th hour. <laughs> I wonder if that in some ways prepared us for what would happen with Beyond Literary Analysis because the, I mean, the short story is Rebecca and I went on a, um, a little writing retreat just the two of us um, one weekend in March and we really thought... This and the book was due weekend. in June. The book was due in June. This was March yeah. and we thought wow. this was going to be the weekend when we sort of pulled everything together and made a final checklist and called it a day, but it was the exact opposite. Oh, and really turned the book on its head and, and showed us that there was a real problem with Section 2, and it just wasn't working, it wasn't useful, it wasn't what we envisioned. So we had to kind of redesign it from the ground up 
And then we had a lot of work to do over the next three or four months to, to actually see it through. And so... Um, and not just the writing, but also in our classrooms. I mean, it caused us to say, like, we don't have enough. Like, we don't have mm-hmm. enough to give teachers. And what we do have needs to be um, newer and fresher and more inspired. Again, I guess that's what we mm-hmm. always come back to is this thing yeah. is more inspired. And so it not only caused us to have to, like, rewrite probably 50% of the book in the last two or three months, but we were reteaching everything that we thought we had already sort of settled upon and learning a lot of brand new things. Mm-hmm. That, put a, that must put a lot yeah. of pressure on your teaching. Oh, yeah. It was um, it was a crazy the last few months of school for lots of reasons. Talk about painful. <laughs> needed to keep like drilling down until we got to you know the essence of what we were trying to do the whole time but didn't realize or couldn't realize until that particular moment again the writing situation that heavily impacted the writing that was coming out or would have to come out it's like we needed it it had to be March for us to figure out that this there was a problem we wouldn't have been able to see it sooner and well, it also, yeah go ahead. I was gonna say it also had to be March because our kids would not have been ready before March to do the writing we needed them to try to do yeah that's like a for the book you know right, like right, right. we had to yeah. do a whole lot of teaching of eighth and ninth and twelfth graders in September through March to get to the point where they were even ready for us to be like um guys guess what we need to experiment with a thousand new methods <laughs> that's the thing they don't yeah. tell you like, uh, yeah. when, when I read a lot of teacher books, which are all great, like, uh, this is not a slam on any of the teacher books, but when I read uh, a, lot of these, uh, a lot of these teacher books, they're great lessons, like amazing ideas or, or amazing thinking around teaching, but the thing that I don't always get until I'm in the moment teaching these strategies is it's a process and you have to, it's a long process and you have to trust the process. And, mm-hmm. man, that's really hard when you haven't experienced it before. And yeah. you guys were kind of building the plane uh, as you flew it, weren't you? Yes, yep. which unfortunately that's does seem to be the way we do things. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I also think, like, that really keeps us honest. And, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. we never doing this job, like, writing, talking, working with teachers, um, chatting with you on a podcast. Like, we never, <laughs> ever want to give the message that this is easy work. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not easy work. It is amazing work, and it is wonderful work, and it is the only work that has truly transformed my classroom and transformed my students. But but there is also a lot of productive struggle in that work. And like you said, a whole lot of trust yeah. and a whole mm-hmm. lot of, like, leaping first and then seeing where things land. Um, and so, you know, it, it really keeps us honest to have to do that ourselves in our own classrooms in order to be able to share with teachers. Um, and I think ultimately I can say this in retrospect because it's not April again. Um, you know, we, we wouldn't have it any other way. Like that's the way we want it. We want to be struggling to do the work, to share the work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have never been comfortable with the question, what's the worst thing that could happen? <laughs> but I It's my that, favorite. Uh, <laughs> It's Rebecca's favorite, but she taught me to learn to, to love that question because it's what gives you the confidence to take that leap of faith. And so now I ask it of myself all the time. You know, what's the worst thing that could happen? Um, 
And I think it's a really good, it's a great question. You know, it, it, it gets you up and it gets you trying the thing that's really scary uh, and, and realizing that, like, okay, if this thing fails, then we're going to just look at another way and we're going to try yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. If that doesn't work, then we're going to try something else. And, you know, and that's a lot of the magic happens um, in that in that question and asking that question and, and taking that leap. And the great thing is, is I don't think the kids ever realize that they're actually, mm. like, on a high wire. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the kids don't feel that insecurity we feel. Yeah. The kids right. don't really feel when a lesson goes terribly. They're just yeah. like, oh, well, I'm going to go to math. You know? <laughs> exactly. Um, and so there's a whole lot of grace in that, I think. Mm. And, and a whole lot of grace that teachers need to offer themselves more of and remind themselves mm-hmm. of more often is that, Kids are incredibly resilient, and one horrible lesson, one horrible mm-hmm. week, even one horrible like writing study that you thought was going to be spectacular yeah. really was a flop. Like they are not going to remember that. They're not going to. Um, and so that should give us confidence to try, but it also should give us grace for when we fail. We were talking about how writers might approach things differently if they could write their book again, or maybe publish a new revised edition. And that's kind of what's happened. Allison and Rebecca have published a book called A Teacher's Guide to Mentor Texts. um, And a link to that book is in our episode's show notes. And by the way, you'll want to be sure to check out our episode's show notes every episode because... They also contain ways that you can connect with and follow the work of the Ohio Writing Project. And while you're there, be sure to check out the information we have about Octella, or just go to octella.org. Okay, that's it for the plugs. Thank you so much for tuning in to Write Answers.